Are you ready? Are you shitty down? Season four of the Shine On Podcast, absolutely terrific guest. My take on what's happening in the world of divorce. Are the stakes high? You better believe it. The unfiltered and real take on what divorce is like from the absolute best professionals. Life, love, marriage, divorce, relationships, finances. Topics that far too often many people shy away from. But, but not, not here, here on the on Shine On Podcast. Season four of the Shine On Podcast, I'm Evan Shine. I am absolutely fired up for what promises to be a great 2024 season here on the podcast with absolutely terrific guests. And of course, my take on what's happening in the world of divorce. As a divorce attorney, I live it. I breathe it. I walk side by side with my clients through the divorce journey each and every day of my life, helping the people I represent navigate the divorce process. Are the stakes high? You better believe it. Is divorce a time of uncertainty? Absolutely. But let me be 100% crystal clear. You can, with the right attorney, the right team in place, and the right divorce plan focused and tailored to your goals and the facts of your specific situation, divorce in the right way, the smart way, the strategic way, and in a way that shields your children and protects your money and assets. And on season four of the Shine Up podcast, we're going to answer your divorce questions, give you the unfiltered and real take on what divorce is like, hear from the absolute best professionals in the business as we continue to bring you fantastic interviews with experts from around the world. We're going to talk life, love, marriage, divorce, relationships, finances, and get into topics that far too often many people shy away from, but not here on the Shine On Podcast. We tackle it all from different angles and different perspectives, and I do it with my guy, producer Dave. How are you? Are you fired up for the start of season four? I think a lot of athletes around their fourth year of in their career really start to build their Hall of Fame resume, Evan, and I think that's what this podcast is doing. In season four, picking up from where we left off last, last season, but going where no divorce podcast has ever gone before. And Dave, I got to tell you, that's what makes this podcast fun, informative, but different. This is not a guide on how to get divorced. It's not. This is something different, something better. This is something unique, something that you can't find. I truly believe, and I know we've had this conversation before, anywhere else with the types of information the guests, the docket segment, which is always great, right? And you bring your A game like nobody I've ever seen. This is a podcast that you don't see. Yeah, absolutely right. You won't find this stuff in Black's Law Dictionary. You won't find it in a law book. You won't find it taught in law school because these are the stories from the trenches, from people who have gotten divorced, from people who every day help people through divorces, and then some interesting stories that are kind of on the outskirts of divorce, like the dating world, relationships, parenting. So you get it all in the shine on stew, as it were. Exactly. And Dave, speaking of interesting and speaking of fantastic interviews, we kick off season four, episode 71 with the brilliant author and therapist, Hugh Valen. And I want to set the stage for new listeners to the podcast who might be joining us for the first time. 
I'm a divorce attorney with my firm, Berkman, Bakker, Newman, Shine in New York City. We have offices here in New York City, Westchester, New York, Long Island, New York, and New Jersey. And for those joining us for the start of season four, welcome. I promise it's going to be informative and entertaining. And for those who have been with us since season one, thank you. Thank you for staying on this journey with us. I love what I do here on the podcast. Dave loves what he does. And we're happy to bring you the best of the best when it comes to an informative, fun, engaging podcast, diving through and tackling the relevant topics, the hottest topics, articles or video clips in the world of divorce. And Dave, we do a fun segment, as you know, the docket. And we also have an Ask Evan segment. Both of those segments are back for season four. And Dave, I have one question for you. Yes, sir. Are you ready for season four? I'm ready. Are you ready to fire up the docket, sir? Dave, I'm ready to fire it up. And I got to tell you, at this point in season four, we're in a long-term relationship. At this, point. <laughs> this is like my, this is one of the longest relationships I've ever been in. Me so as well. Luck, luck, lucky me. All right. Here we go, my friend. Fire it up. And now, let's see what's on the docket. A special edition of the docket. As we sit here, episode one, season four, we're going to look back on some of the memorable moments from the past year and some of the guests. So we're going to, this will be fun. We're going to play some highlights from past episodes. You'll recall very well, Evan, we'll start with this one. Author and matchmaker, Rachel Greenwald. Here's some of what she had to say. I had a client in Denver and he was a partner in a law firm and I wanted to introduce him to some women in New York. And I felt like based on what he really wanted and needed that women in New York were going to be a better fit for him, even though he lived in Denver. And he told me with 100% certainty, he did not have time for a long distance relationship. And he would absolutely never date someone out of state. And the woman I eventually, I'll sort of simplify the story, but the woman I eventually introduced him to or originally said that she wouldn't go out with him either because he lived too far away and she wanted to get married sooner or later and didn't have time for a long distance relationship. And I practically forced them to get together and meet again. I'll just make it short for the purpose of the podcast, but eventually they fell in love and she moved to Denver within six months of starting to date him. And now they are married with two kids. I happen to be a single man myself, and I might be reconnecting with the Rachel Greenwald because that is just a magical story. What do you remember about her visit to the show? And Dave, I got to tell you, you would be absolutely crazy not to because Rachel <laughs> is brilliant. And when I listen to that clip, to me, it's about hope. It's about going through whatever journey you're on. It could be a divorce. It doesn't have to be a divorce. But when something doesn't work out, a date, if you've struggled to find love or be in a meaningful relationship, don't give up hope. Sometimes you'll find it when you're not expecting it. Stick to your plan. Don't lose sight of what's important. And also push yourself out there. You might have certain boundaries or you might have certain requirements and maybe expand it. Maybe be open. 
be open. Don't shut the door. And if you put yourself out there and if you're open to being in a relationship and finding love and, and you have the right people to help you get there, you know what? You can turn past difficult experiences into something really positive. Yeah, the proof is in the pudding. That was that long distance relationship. Sounds like a Hail Mary, but not for Rachel Greenwald. We also got a visit from clinical psychologist Dr. Dory Wheel. Let's take a listen to what she had to say to us. Uh, next quote comes to us from philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, who said the following To live is to suffer, to survive is to find some meaning in the suffering. Your thoughts on that, Dr. D? I think that what he's saying is that hardship, suffering, challenge is a part of life. And if it, it, it was something that I said right at the beginning, and I'm trying to think of who said it first, but I'm saying it now that the only way out is in. So that means that there is, there in, in relation to going through, through the predictable life stages and the unpredictable things that happen to us, life happens. As John Lennon says, it happens when you're making other plans. Got a little Friedrich Nietzsche and a little John Lennon in that episode. What do you remember about Dr. D? Well, first let me say, I remember sitting on the edge of my chair doing this interview with Dr. D, holding on to every word she said and listening to her stories. Because, Dave, as, as you recall, the impact that she made on the lives of so many people that she has come in contact with. I mean, wow, for a second. I mean, let's talk about it. How great was just that interview and having Dr. D on the podcast? Yeah, it was fantastic. She has walked among greats. She likes to tell the story of her relationship with Nelson Mandela, and it was a genuine relationship, just full of gold, that episode. Yeah, and, and I listened to the quote, Dave, that, that you played and you pulled for, for today's episode. She's got the line, life happens and the only way out is in. And I love this because when you think of the divorce process, it sucks. The, getting divorced <laughs> sucks. Nobody likes it, right. right? Even when you know it's coming, it doesn't feel good. You don't like it. There's transition for you, your family, your kids. But it's also a stage in life. You're not going to go through the divorce process forever. And I know it might feel like forever. I know that the divorce process goes on much longer than it needs to, but you'll get through it and you'll pick yourself up and you'll be in a different place and a different stage of life. And that's really the cycle of life that Dr. D talks about. Absolutely. And talk about the various stages of life and the great variety of life and the great variety of guests on this show. We go from someone like Dr. D to divorce manager, Alex Cap, who is an expert in handling people struggling through the early stages of a divorce, but also someone that happened to be on the show Seinfeld. It was Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David in the room, and Jerry was reading George's part. So immediately I was like, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> we read the scene, and the first thing I really had to say is George says to me, I'm, I'm breaking up with you, and I just say no. And he's like, <laughs> all right. So anyway, Jerry said it. I said no. And I saw him laugh, like hold his face, and then he turned around to look at Larry and David, and they looked at each other. And I thought, did I just get this job? There was something about that <laughs> moment. I knew I'd make Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David laugh, even with one word. So they called 
this other actress's name. And so I was like, oh my God, I didn't get it. So I pick up my bag, I start to walk out, and the casting director, Mark Hirschfeld, called out to me. He's like, Alex, where are you going? And I was like, what do you mean, where am I going? You just called Ileana. I got to go. He goes, no, you got the part. Ileana, you're going to do the other part. And I went, oh my God. And we went straight to work, went to the table read that like five minutes later shot the episode it was a it was one of the great moments of my life truly it was a it was an amazing experience talk about a hot ticket by the way i just realized she was referring to iliana douglas who she beat out for that part who's a great actress been in cape fear and many other things but talk about someone who's lived a a life and of intrigue and she, she obviously was an actor but i think she she really that talent, that personality comes out in what she does as a divorce manager, too. What, what do you remember about Alex Cap? And, Dave, i got to tell you, you hit the nail right on the head. If I was going through a divorce, I want Alex Cap by my side. Her personality, her take, her approach, her humor, her experiences that she talked about, she shares those life experiences with her clients. I would want her by my side. If I was going through the divorce process and when I listen to the quote you played, my takeaway, you never know when you're going to have that aha moment. You never know when something tremendous and wonderful and special is going to happen to you. And for so many people who go through the divorce process and you have your dark days and trust me, there's a lot of them. Mm -hmm. There's going to be some good days, too. There's going to be some really good days, too. During the process, after the process, life goes on. Absolutely. Just Alex's was fantastic. And again, it just goes to show you the variety of people that we've had on the show. And this will be another left turn because the last guest that we'll be revisiting in this segment is Dr. Christine Adams, who is accomplished. She's a published author. She's a top of her field but also she says a lot of things that not everyone's going to agree with let's take a listen part where the joint custody presumption in many ways falls short it takes away the investigative due diligence approach into the why it's absolutely a formatted decision rather than an investigative decision and that's the problem that's the whole problem. It's a presumption of parents are equal, so we can send the child here 50% and there 50% of the time um, without really looking at the particular needs of this child and in this family. So that that was the thrust of her argument, and, and you framed it very well with your question to Dr. Adams, Evan. What do you remember about that discussion? I remember... Our post discussion where we talked about, look, I know you disagree with Dr. Adams and look, you're not alone when it comes to her take on on joint custody versus sole custody. I will say, and look, I agree with you, her position and take against the presumption of joint custody, especially in New York and other states that have a presumption and New York doesn't have that presumption, but the trend is to go towards joint custody. Her take's a bit outdated and it's not really in line with what I'm seeing today in a courtroom, although to give her credit for a second, I think she supported her position with points that she felt were relevant in research. But it's a take that I know the two of us in our post-interview discussion, <laughs> neither one of us fully agreed with. Not at the end of the day, but 
I, I still think it's, first of all, it's great to have people on the show. If we have just people on the show we agree with, then it wouldn't be a very interesting show. And there's a, a point to be made there. And really, in in defending the presumption of joint custody, like we should be we should have to defend it because these are important decisions. And so and really in every marriage to to a degree, I think you should have to defend it. You mean not it's a presumption that doesn't mean it's appropriate for every relationship. And so if you think you deserve joint custody, then stand up and tell us why, which is what I did. But again, great, great guest. Very compelling. All right, Evan, we now hear from you, the listener. Another edition coming up right now of Ask Evan. Ask Evan. Ask Evan. Ask Evan. Ask Evan is the segment, again, where we hear from you, the listener. And today we hear from Phyllis in Staten Island, New York. Phyllis writes as follows. Dear Evan, sadly, after 12 years, I think my husband and I are headed for divorce, which we have discussed. He now seems to be spending a lot of time in his office privately on his computer. I have no idea what he is up to. Is he having an affair? Is he shielding me from money? What can I do? That's what Phyllis says. Phyllis, thank you for the question. And let me say this. You have a lot of good questions and concerns. And in the beginning stages of a divorce, it's so easy for your mind to take you places of the unknown, fear, uncertainty, where you seemingly question everything. Let me give you one piece of advice to start. Breathe. And after you take a deep breath, try to have a conversation with your husband. Who knows what he's doing in his office on his computer? He could be in multiple fantasy football leagues or playing (laughs) online poker. There's no reason to speculate and twist yourself into a pretzel without having a conversation with your husband. Depending on how that conversation goes, you may want to reach out to a couples therapist, individual therapist, or a divorce attorney. There is just too much unknown right now. If divorce is the path you end up going down, reach out to a divorce attorney so you can be prepared and find people to support you through the process. You'll get your answers, maybe just some, maybe all of them. And once you have those answers, you'll find the right way to deal with it. That's another edition of Ask Evan. If you want to submit a question for Evan to answer on the podcast, email producer Dave at david at pod617.com. Our featured guest on the Shine Up podcast is Duke Ubalin. She's a licensed psychotherapist specializing in family and intergenerational trauma and attachment wounding. She's the first author for Rewrite, a trauma workbook of creative writing and recovery in our new normal. Duke, you welcome to the podcast and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. And we're going to get into a lot of fun stuff and a lot of interesting topics. And I want to start with you and your practice. And I want to ask if you can share a defining moment in your career as we turn the page from 2023 to 2024 that when you think back to how you got started and your work that led you to specialize in the work that you do? Sure. Actually, that happened really early on in my career. Uh, I was doing my internship still in grad school. I was working in a school district that was pretty underserved and under-resourced. And I was a school counselor there. And I was working with students who came from very unstable homes, whose parents were in jail. And there was a lot of drug addiction around them, a lot of violence. And 
For us, we were talking about their behaviors in class and how disruptive they were in this quote unquote, um, referring to them as difficult children. And for me, what was really striking was that we weren't really talking about the underlying reasons. So not only were, were we not talking about the acute trauma, but we also weren't talking about how the way that they were acting was actually the survival mechanisms. It was how they kept themselves alive. And it was very important to me to actually allow for them to be able to express themselves. And I knew that once that kind of relationship started forming and there was trust in the relationship and they were able to tell me things like these stories that nobody ever heard or nobody ever listened, that was a very sacred experience for me. And I knew that that was the only thing I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And I still, that's how I feel. And I will be doing that for the rest of my life. And after that, I worked in the Bronx in a hospital setting where we did assessments for welfare. And there, very similarly, I worked with youth offenders and who were very disenfranchised and marginalized. And just the the privilege of being able to be let in into their world just was so important to me and to see how change happened in that way. I love hearing that. And I just want to piggyback off that and ask you, what would your advice be to anyone who's still working in that school setting with everything going on in the world today, the youth, and really what's happening in various school systems nationwide? What would your advice be the counselors, teachers, people who really can make a difference for children at a very young age? I mean, I think mainly, and many, many people who work in these systems are already doing this because it takes a certain type of a person to be in, in that. And I think it, it's about listening. It's about listening what they have to say. And it's about giving the space because a lot of times these children are very overlooked and people don't really listen to them. And the, what they internalize is what I have to say doesn't matter. And that's how their self-worth is shaped. And that's how the way that they relate to the world and the way they relate to one another and the way they relate to themselves is shaped. So I think the way that change happens is by doing something different. And the difference is giving them, okay, you matter and what you say matters. And I care about your perspective. That is just goes such a long way. Do you talking about change? Let's talk about your therapeutic practice. You're trained in packed psychobiological approach to couples therapy level two. How does this approach really differ from traditional couples therapy and what unique perspective and insights? does it offer? So in in the PACT approach, it's a psychobiological approach to couples therapy. So it has a, a attachment focus, which means that a lot of times our early attachments is what shapes the way that we even pick our relationships and the way that we show up in our relationships. And even though a lot of people may know where our partners come from and their, and be familiar with their family structure, it's actually was very fascinating to me after I started working with couples to see how much we didn't know, how much people didn't know about the uh, relationships they had in their early childhoods. Because, because a lot of times what you find is they know the cover story of like, 
you know, maybe my, my father was an alcoholic and there was a lot of violence in my home. So like the cover story, but not really the the body response or not really what triggers these certain emotions. What's the underlying feelings and sensations and what survival mechanisms were utilized for that person? Like these are not really openly discussed. And I think the PACT approach differs in the sense that this is what we talk about. So many people come to couples therapy wanting to work on communication issues. And I don't even know what that means, right? Like there's, there's no, <laughs> they're like, we want to have better communication. But in reality, there's no having better communication without actually understanding the attachment process and without actually understanding how we trigger one another and how we activate each other in a nervous system level. So once we have awareness in how we interact in a nervous system level and how we kind of push each other into our trauma responses, then we can talk about how we can regulate one another. So it's before words. It's about the body, two bodies reacting. So teaching couples how to regulate one another in a body level that's after that we talk can talk about saying things differently and as a divorce attorney i find that people often want to engage a couple's therapist and a marital therapist to to really work on communication but to your point i find that people think it's going to be a very quick process we're going to go in and we're going to learn how to communicate or learn how to communicate better and that's really the end of it but i take it it's a much longer and much more complex process than that Yes. Mm -hmm. Now, it's almost making me think as well, if everybody entered couples therapy before they got married, how many marriages would be better and how many marriages would be saved? (laughs) Yeah, it's true, actually. And actually, I've been seeing that a lot more, which is very encouraging. I see many people before they get married, start couples therapy. And I also see a lot more people begin couples therapy before there's actually a problem. Um, before, because the dynamics, when they solidify and calcify in a way, uh, when we keep repeating them, it becomes so much harder to change, not impossible, but just harder. So as we are actually uh, forming the culture of our relationship, being in a couples therapy and understanding how to uh, communicate in the best way and how to, as I said, regulate one another's nervous system and help uh, each other soothe one another is so valuable and makes such a big difference, really increases the quality of the marriage and therefore life quality. It's almost like a premarital boot camp to, to <laughs> learn everything, how to, how to work on the marriage and the relationship and communication. And, but I think it it would definitely help. It would help because look, marriage is not a honeymoon forever. You have the, the, the beginning stage and when everyone's in love and everybody's happy, but marriage is hard work and there's children and there's life's ups and there's downs and job loss and trauma and financial issues, whatever it may be for people as you navigate what people hope are the next 30 to 50 years together. And it's not all the fun and it's not all the honeymoon period. So I think that's incredibly important. Now, you have such an interesting background. So I want to ask how your background has really influenced your style in practice and really your understanding of trauma across different cultural contexts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I had the privilege, but also the challenge of moving around a lot as a a kid. So I was born in Germany, and then I lived in Turkey, and then I lived here actually in New Jersey, and then I moved back to Turkey. So 
that was challenging in the sense that every time you have to adapt and make new friends. And also when you grow up in a certain culture, your desires and wishes are shaped by that certain culture. And then when you change and move to a different culture, then all of a sudden, maybe your wishes are judged, or they're just not applicable, or there's no resources. So, so, and there's, of course, also the barrier of language. So for that, actually, uh, I think influenced um, me as a person and me as uh, a clinician very much. Uh, because it made it so that I had to focus on micro expressions and body language and voice tone more than actual words and had to learn how to read people in this way because I didn't necessarily have the luxury of speaking. I, even though I spoke Turkish at home, of course, it's in when I've lived in Germany, of course, it's different than Turkish that my friends sure. spoke when I moved there. So that was one thing that I feel like really altered the way I relate to the world. And also, I think more than the differences, the similarities was striking to me. So, and I was was just able to understand this at a very early age because of my background. So we all actually human beings, even though it's dressed differently and manifests differently, we all want the same thing. We all want to be loved we all want to be seen. We all want to be acknowledged and feel safe in the relationships we're in. And that information, I think, is what shaped my my entire personality and my and also what I do probably for, for a living. No, I love that. And let's talk more about what you do. Humor, creativity, authentic human connection. There's such key and important aspects of how you practice healing. Can you share an example of humor? And how that played a role in one of your therapeutic sessions? Mm -hmm. So humor in my family, uh, in my partnership is, I guess, one of the most important coping uh, strategies. Definitely, I feel like laughing is important. It, it breaks tension. And I use humor in my sessions all the time. But when it comes to specific example, I don't know. I guess you have to be there for it to be funny now. But but. Uh, in, in, even in the hardest, most heartbreaking session, there is a way of using humor as tension release. And and also it's a great, great icebreaker, right? And we don't have to be serious all the time. We can be silly and we can make fun of ourselves. I make fun of myself all the time and <laughs> laugh, laugh at myself. And I think that makes you a real human too, which is very important in the therapeutic relationship. You have to be a human for another human to connect to you. So so yeah, I can't think of one specific example right now because it happens so often and it's also very person-specific. Your new workbook, it refers to the new normal. How has the concept of normalcy evolved in the context of trauma, and how can individuals navigate this evolution in a healthy way? Mm -hmm. So the concept of trauma is when the idea of everything that I know about the world will work tomorrow. So everything that I know about yesterday will work tomorrow as well. That idea is shattered. And we saw that actually in the pandemic, where all of a sudden the the kind of concept of what it meant to be in the world was all of a sudden not applicable. And the tools that we had 
for instance, our socialization, our social networks, our extracurricular activities were just not accessible anymore. So the way that I handle life, the way that I handled life yesterday, I can't use that tomorrow because all of a sudden this life altering thing happened. That is what trauma is. And I think the most important piece in this is to be able to process the emotions that go along with it. When we're in a traumatic situation, we are in a survival mode. So we can't necessarily feel what what we're experiencing. I mean, we can't even access our body sensations. We don't feel hungry when we're in, in survival mode, when we're in a crisis mode. We don't, you know, we are not noticing that we have to use the bathroom. Uh, and we're definitely not feeling our emotions. We're The only thing that is happening is we're surviving and that's evolutionarily necessary for the human to survive. But once that traumatic experiences, experience passes, then we, for, for us to be able to move forward, we have to feel into those emotions. In other words, we have to complete that memory. So that memory feels incomplete when we're not really feeling the emotions and we're not really having the experience fully. So going back and completing the memory makes it possible that every time something reminds us of that sensation, we don't get kicked back into the traumatic moment and react to our life from the past, basically. So I'm a huge believer in couples therapy and therapy in general for my clients. And I often recommend it when people are going through separation or divorce. But in response, I'll get from clients, Evan, what am I going to learn? What's the approach? What's the methodology? And obviously, that's going to depend based on where the couple is, what their goals are, the specific therapist. But I want to ask you, in your experience, do you find certain methodologies or approaches work best for couples who are separating and divorcing? I mean, I think, uh, yes. I think what works best is for me is for the the therapist's role. So what what the therapist's role is really really is important I think. In in the work in the way that I work in, uh, with a packed approach, the therapist's role is more of kind of like a stage director. So it's not really about me understanding what's happening and it's not really about the relationship they have with me. Of course the relationship they have with me matters, but it, uh, what matters more is how they communicate with one another. So this is how it's different than individual therapy. Because in individual therapy, the relationship between the therapist and the client is what the healing is. But in the couple's uh, situation, the what, what you're treating is the relationship. So I think what I really, what really works is for people to, first of all, read each other's body language and make eye contact. Many conversations as under stress or in conflict don't happen with eye contact. And that's actually the first way we learn how to communicate. So babies, when they are born, they look at their parents' or caregivers' eyes to understand if the world is safe or if they're safe or if they're loved. That's how they get those those cues. So for that reason, when we make eye contact, it's actually so much easier to connect and so much easier to start a conversation. So I think in in the PACT approach, we have clients facing each other. And the couple talks to one another and the therapist guides them. So I might kind of 
jump in and have them notice each other's bodies. I might say, do you notice what's happening to her hands right now? Her hands are shaking. Or I might interject and say something like, instead of saying it like this, like that sounds mean, can you say it a little bit nicer? Can you try, like try again like this? And I think that really works actually. And do you, your background in writing, it's evident from your workbook. How do you believe storytelling contributes to the healing process especially in the context of trauma recovery? I think there's a couple ways that it contributes. One, I think, for instance, I mean, storytelling it has ever existed ever since humans existed, right? Like it was from the kind of drawings on the caves and then to talking about talking around fires. Storytelling has always been a way human beings process their emotions. They have how they have connected to one another and how they connected to the world around them. And I think one way that storytelling really works is it's sometimes it's easier to process and feel certain emotions through another character. So for instance, if we're connecting to a mother-daughter relationship and processing our own mother-daughter relationship through that character, maybe we're able to access certain things that we never allowed ourselves to feel. So in that sense, I think storytelling is really powerful where we're having experiences through somebody else that allow us access to our own psyche. Um, that's one way. And then the other one is, I think, really empowering because we can actually write our stories, rewrite our stories, right? Um, and for instance, if we grow up in certain family situations, um, for maybe like we were abandoned at a young age, the narrative and the story that we tell ourselves might be, I'm not worth loving and people who I love will always leave. And that will dictate how we present ourselves in relationships. And that will dictate who we pick and who we relate to and how we relate to the world. And actually we can rewrite that story and we can change how we perceive ourselves and how what we how we want to be treated basically we can actually dictate how we want to be treated in relationships and i think the storytelling really plays in a big role in this where people can write their own stories like i have people write how do you want to be what kind of a relationship do you want to have it everything always starts with a fantasy so create this the most amazing relationship for yourself what does that look like and then how is that possible is that possible and usually it is it is possible so that's i think how storytelling works for trauma recovery and Dugu, i'm gonna ask you to put on your superhero cape for the next question and i'm gonna ask you if you had the power to eliminate one common misconception about therapy or couples therapy, what would it be and why? One thing. <laughs> you can give more, more than one thing. You, you're, you're the one who's wearing the superhero cape. You can give me one thing or more than one thing. I think one of the most important things that I, misconceptions that I would change, and it's changing a little bit, I think, already, is the, the therapist kind of being a blank slate in the therapeutic relationship. So the per the therapist not really ha being a person or not having a personality, like that kind of image of a therapist with pastel color, flowy clothes and in a room with no indication of who they might be. 
That is a misconception because I think uh, many therapists actually work from who they are as a person. So of course, this doesn't mean that the therapist struggles or their emotions take precedence in the therapeutic relationship. The client is never responsible of how the therapist feels and it's never about the therapist, but the therapist is a human being. And I think actually healing is much more possible when the therapist is a human being. So the fact that the therapist has taste and that the therapist listens to certain music and has certain roles in life, maybe as a mother, maybe as a father, like these kind of things, that is, it's a misconception that the client never knows anything about the therapist, that the therapist never shows up with their personality, with who they are. Or maybe they had a difficult day and they might mention this. Or maybe they're going through a big life event and they might mention this. This happens all the time. And I think actually that is a very healing component of the therapeutic relationship because Ultimately, we heal in relationship to another human, not in relationship to a robot. Let's do a little reflection with the change in the calendar year from 23 to 2024. And I can't believe it's 2024, which is an issue in and of itself, but I'm excited for the new year. So let's think back to 23 and beyond for a moment. If you were to write a letter to your younger self, what advice about mental health and resilience would you offer? Um, that's a good question. I think I would uh, kind of going back into the, the multicultural background. For me, I would talk more about your, your, your dreams and, and your wishes. Like, what are you allowed to wish for yourself? What are you allowed to dream for yourself? Uh, for me, like the academic was difficult moving around and changing schools and the uh, the academic demands are very different in different countries so there was a lot of catching up to do and I always had this idea as a child where like your academic life and what you your performance dictated the rest of your life and and where, where you could get and I think I would write myself a letter and tell myself that it's not an indicator that you are cultivating different aspects of yourself. And it's a kind of a holistic approach. It's not a one dimensional approach and you can dream anything, right? Everything starts with a, with a, with a dream first and there's no reason to let anyone else or any culture edit your dreams and make your dreams smaller so I think I would write something uh, along those lines. And that's how I work in my practice as well. I mean, there, I feel like there's so many things that are downloaded to us about what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a parent. But in reality, we make those decisions and we make the decisions of how we live and what works for us. And we actually have a lot of control over that. No, I love that. Everything starts with a dream. Brilliant line. Is there something you see more of in your practice in the new year, in January specifically? Yes. I mean, there's in January, usually like there's, it, it goes in cycles in January. People have a lot of, it, 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 there's more energy. There's people come more energized. There's a lot of decisions that happen, a lot of resolutions and people, there's a lot of reflections So people reflect on things that worked and things that didn't work in the previous year and kind of use that as an empowerment for what they want from the year coming. 
So that is always very refreshing, these, these like decisions and then pe seeing people move towards their decisions. So that usually happens in, in the new year. People decide to change careers or decide to pick up a new hobby or decide to kind of use, have more healthy habits in their lifestyle. These kind of things happen a lot in January. Do you have a specific New Year's resolution or New Year's goal for yourself, whether it's personally or professionally? Always. I always have a <laughs> resolutions. Yeah, for me personally, I... I, I guess it's presence is important for me. I, that's always a resolution. I want to be present in, in every aspect. And I am doing a lot of nonfiction work, but I'm also doing fiction work. And right now in this for 2024, I want to work, finish my second novel that I started last year. So and it's a little bit of a challenge to find time for uh, fiction with everything else. Sure happening so maybe a little bit more discipline and a little bit more kind of like scheduling it in I'm I, writing fiction writing is not something that I felt like it could be scheduled it's usually something that like just comes up organically but now I'm in for this year I'm thinking a little bit more maybe scheduling it in so that I can actually and in, in whatever way that writing may look like in that moment it, because it feels very important for me to actually also give life to the fiction work I do. Without telling us too much, give us a little sneak preview on the second novel you're working on. The second novel? So for me, I always work about uh, my everything that I write is always about very character driven. It's, it's about how humans injure themselves, injure each other in relationships, but also heal them, each other in relationships. So the second novel, very much like the first one, will be about that. It will be about complicated relationships and it will address things, issues around body image or, and these kind of struggles finding identity from a male perspective and and yeah like toxic relationships no that's great we can't wait for that book to come out we'll have to have you back on the podcast and speaking of the new year and one of the stars of 2024 let's bring on producer dave for a fun segment we do called they said it they said it they said it they said it All right. First quote comes to us from Charles Darwin, and the quote goes like this. It is not the strongest of the species that survive, nor the most intelligent, but the one most responsive to change. So do you tell us what you think of that one? Pro or con or any thoughts that come to mind? I mean, this is definitely true. I think I hard to I argue with uh, the father of evolution. Yeah. <laughs> and actually my son's name in Turkish means evolution. Evrim. Mm. Uh, yes. So I, definitely, I think it's, it's all about being able to move and change. And that's what makes us survive. And also in relationships too. This is how, like in one marriage, there's always several different marriages. In one relationship, there's many different ways we relate to one another. And the, the relationships that survive are the ones who are able to respond to one another and the way then change with each other. Very good. I think that's actually provides a good segue for quote number two, which comes to us from author Steve Maraboli, who said the following. 
The best way to love someone is not to change them, but instead help them reveal the greatest version of themselves. What thoughts come to mind when you hear the, those words? Also very true. <laughs> <laughs> I, did, uh, I, don't, I don't know if I picked any uh, controversial ones for this episode, but, but at any rate, yeah, does that, does, tell, us, tell us why that rings, Trudy. I, and I think the, the, the first thing that came to my mind was actually the safety uh, in a relationship, because with the safety of a relationship, we actually the best version of ourselves comes out, right? When we're safe, because as I, as we were just talking, a lot of the defense mechanisms kick in when we don't feel safe. And when we're feeling safe, then when we, then we can actually relate to someone in the best version of ourselves. And we can actually have open communication and we can respond from a much more compassionate level than when we are responding from a defensive level. Excellent. We now move on to the third quote. And it's uh, at least a little bit on the lighter side. Comes to us from uh, Dr. Joyce Brothers. She said the following: Marriage is just not, excuse me, marriage is not just spiritual communion. It's also remembering to take out the trash. Which reminds me, I need to take out the trash after the show. <laughs> tell us what. Tell us what you think of that. And also emptying the dishwasher. Yep. I got to do that too, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and according to my wife, I can never empty the dishwasher correctly or put in the dishes correctly. It's she's got a thing with organization in the dishwasher that I'll never understand. Actually, that's very interesting. You say that because the dishwasher comes up in my sessions so often. It, it doesn't matter what background or what age group uh, I'm talking to. The couples always talk about the dishwasher and how it's you know how it's emptied and all of that like it, there's a everyone has their different way of doing it and it's always an issue people always talk about the dishwasher it's really and, a, and, a, and apparently no matter which way i do it if i switch it up unless it's her way it's the wrong way so for now i'm taking i'm taking a little break from the from the dishwasher <laughs> but tell us does that speak to the fact that the mundane aspects of life sometimes turn out to be just as important as the as the bigger picture? Yes. I, I, and I think that, that they, they influence one another, I think. And, and then, of course, again, like it's, it's important to understand and have this open communication and, and certain, I think it's a contract too. Like it's a contract about a decision about how you're going to manage day, day to day life and who is, uh, whose strengths are like based on your strengths and based on your ability and uh, kind of having the division in that sense. It, it doesn't have to be in the traditional way we think about it, right? And actually, it's better if it isn't. It's, if it, it's much better if we create our own way of managing life together and whatever that may look like. Well, you're being saluted for successfully navigating, they said, a tremendous job. And back to you, Evan, to wrap things up. Producer Dave, that was a blast. You really brought your A-game to kick off the first 2024 segment. They said it. And, Duke, you have to tell you, this was an absolute blast. I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Happy New Year. And you got to keep us posted on all your work in 2024. And when the novel comes out, we'd love to have you back on. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. Season 4, Episode 71, what a show. This is the way you do it. This is the way you kick off a new season. Producer Dave, 
You're the absolute best. How great was this episode and the conversation with our featured guest? Fantastic conversation. I also had a lot of fun revisiting those past episodes and full steam ahead for Shine On. You got that right. Only good things ahead here on the Shine On podcast. And thank you to all the listeners. You can listen to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcast, including Pod 617. I'm Evan Shine, and I'll talk to you again real soon. 